0: Many of the pre-conscription volunteers served in PALS battalions, the generic name given to those battalions whose recruits had a link either with a particular profession or an area. This enabled volunteers to enlist alongside friends and acquaintances. The downside was that these PALS battalions, like the other recruits raised by Kitchener, were full of novices who knew nothing of army life, let alone what it took to survive and fight in trenches. There was also the risk that if casualties in any particular unit were high, whole families or even whole communities could be more or less wiped out. The top British generals cited the rudimentary training offered to these new recruits as the reason why they adopted pedestrian tactics on the battlefield. But that excuse was far from being the only explanation for what went wrong. Long before the beginning of the planned offensive, There was abundant evidence suggesting that the British Army was not the efficient force it was portrayed to be, and if more politicians had served in the ranks as well as on the general staffs, the government would have been in the know as well. It's easy to see why members of Parliament might not want to muck in with the lower ranks or even with the junior officers. The facilities laid on for them in France were often basic, to say the least. A portrait of the kind of privations and primitive conditions that the newly arrived soldiers had to put up with can be gleaned from the diaries and letters of four soldiers who served in the same battalion. The 22nd Battalion, the Manchester Regiment, one Pals Battalion that was to be entrusted with a particularly important role in the attack being planned. Like many of the Pals Battalions, the 22nd Manchesters, also known as the 7th Manchester Pals, contained a substantial number of middle-class professionals— some of whom were already making their mark in civilian life when war was declared. They included a barrister who was to become a Member of Parliament, and the Government's Solicitor-General after the war, a future editor of the New Statesman, and two university lecturers. Most of these professionals and intellectuals were officers. However, Harry Tawney, a left-wing university lecturer of economic history, whose work would one day lead to him being referred to as one of the brains behind the post-war Labour Party— refused to take the commission offered to him, preferring to serve initially as a private and subsequently as a sergeant. It's largely thanks to Tawney that we know about some of the hardships men in the ranks had to endure, as well as the inefficiencies within the army which were particularly galling for those who were often dismissively referred to as the poor bloody infantry. If one can believe the reassuring letters that Tawney sent to his wife Jeanette before going to France— He handled the trench-digging training exercises surprisingly easily for a man approaching middle age who was not used to physical exercise. He was thirty-four years old at the time of writing. In one such letter he wrote, "'It was quite hard work digging them. One uses a pick and a spade, but I found I could do it as well as the others, and am only a little stiff today.' He found grenade-throwing practice more exacting. It involved getting into trenches and throwing small bags filled with earth as imitation bombs. Torney informed Jeanette. It's more difficult than it sounds, for the trenches are very narrow and deep, and if one knocks the side, one would probably be blown up. However, both activities were preferable to squad drill, of which we're all heartily sick, Torney concluded. His battalion left Lark Hill, the army base on Salisbury Plain, on the 10th of November 1915, and after a brief delay in Folkestone, the men were shipped to Boulogne, the entry port for many of the BEF units sent to France. The departure was particularly hard to bear for those with young families. The resulting homesickness prompted Charlie May, a twenty-seven-year-old captain in the 22nd Manchesters, to scribble a series of heartfelt entries addressed to his wife Maud in the diaries he wrote up each day he was away from his family. It is an extraordinary record, given that unlike so many World War I diaries, it does not just list the day's events. It provides a full account of May's hopes and anxieties— and contains countless professions of love, both for Maud and for Pauline, their newly-born daughter. When shall we meet again? he wrote wistfully on the eve of the battalion's departure for France, continuing, When will the time come when we can once more set up our home and recommence our life of utter happiness? Oh, Maudie, how little I realised where happiness lay until this old war came along and it was denied me. The letter that Tawney wrote to his sister Mildred on the 22nd of November, 1915, describes the conditions that the members of his battalion had to endure on their arrival in France. When we first landed, we had two rather bad days. First, an awful night under canvas in rain, which lasted for about twenty-four hours and made the whole place a swamp. Then, after about four hours in cattle trucks, a march of some fifteen miles...